Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Large Format Photography Podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by my co-host Andrew Bartram. Hello Andrew. Hello Simon. How are you today? Beginning to get the lurgy, but that's what the camping does for you. All that fresh air is bad for you. So yeah. a sore throat. You'll be pleased to know I might not be doing too much talking. Well, fortunately, we've got a very interesting guest, so uh, if you, you might get a little bit of time off. But uh, that'd be good. Uh, but before we before we get there, uh, I just want to say uh, thank you again uh, to Matt Marash, who was with us a couple of weeks ago, and so thanks for being a great guest with us there. Yeah. Um, so just heard there you've been camping. Did you actually manage to do any large format photography while you were out there? No, do you know what? I took three pinhole cameras, but that's another podcast. And I took my Rolleiflex, and I was, um, I, I mean, I was in a bit of a troubled state of mind for lots of reasons I won't go into. And I was very mindful of our next guest because we'd had a long chat with him l- uh, last week. And uh, I, I, I was very mindful of just taking in my surroundings, and uh, in fact, looking for, uh, looking for things, not really to photograph, but trying to use the camera as a means of expression but uh, maybe that'll be unfolded as we come to interview our guest <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't know where to even start doing that so uh, were you using your camera as a means of expression well i i, I try to um, yeah. and when it comes to large format i seem to fail miserably every time um, have you been out with it then this weekend well, well i've got two 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 events uh, two recent events with uh, with a large format camera one was mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago as part of the negative positives uh, double exposure challenge, uh, which uh, the two of us are were involved in, and that's a um, a challenge between different podcasts podcasters uh, to uh, produce something wonderful. And we were thinking, we were thinking, well, we're large format photographers; we can do something amazing. <laughs> mm. um, well, my that worked out well, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah um i i've sent you two blank um uh, negatives so uh, thanks thanks for trying with those blank negatives but uh okay, i've got a quite nice picture of the fins actually <laughs> on one of them i did detect a tiny bit of uh they're not what are they they're not kilns are they those stoky, those stucky stoky bottle oven things yeah yeah but it wasn't in the sky where it was meant to be it was over top of my uh my my bit which was meant to be the base of the image so i but i was so somehow we put the dark slides in different to each other and got the film up the wrong way as well as having no image on the negative <laughs> right well there's that's, that's part of the learning curve and uh the the other the other thing i've done uh last week and i, I posted the picture of uh of myself doing this was uh, I was at a place called the Dor- Dorothy Clive Garden. It's got a beautiful garden. There's a lot of Japanese style aces and things like that in it, and it was beautiful and glorious and colourful. And now we're shooting black and white. Of course, uh, it's, a, it's a it's a waterfall, and the light was just too good. I was trying. I didn't have any, uh, any kind of filters with me, and so you know I, I wanted to you know let let get some motion in the water, but. Uh, I've not seen the photographs yet. I need to still need to process them, but I've just been doing so badly with my exposures lately. Um, I've, I don't know. We'll see. We'll so where, see. where were you placing the shadows? Then um, I didn't. I didn't uh, use a spot meter this time. I went back to my trusty uh, Gossen meter and and just took an overall reading of the uh, of the area. And that's, I was teasing you. That's all right. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh. Yeah, the, my, my my problem is I, I I'm not sure if I can truly trust my shutter speeds, and uh, but we'll we'll talk about that another time. Because I think I just realised I could probably go into a, quite a long discussion, and we've got somebody sitting very patiently um, uh, next to us, uh, metaphorically, um, and that we have Stephen Segersby with us. Um, hello, Stephen. Good evening, and, um, and and thanks for asking me on the show. It's uh, it's it's great to have you here. And uh, as Andrew was saying earlier, uh, we've already had a, a good chat with you uh, because we had a few technical problems for the original planned date uh, for this recording. Uh, I think it took us over an hour before the three of us could actually talk to us at the same time to each other, I should say. And uh, we realised once we actually got going that we weren't going to have enough time to do do our conversation justice. So uh, thank you for uh, coming back to us uh, and having this chat with us tonight. No, no problem. I mean, it's, um, it was uh, it was good to, to talk things through and uh, and trying to get a, an assemblance of what we can actually have a chat about tonight. So uh, so no, I'm, I'm just really pleased to be able to come here. And obviously, uh, Matt, um, you know, he's uh, he's been somebody who I've been talking with and 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 following over the years of, of me being in, uh, involved with large format photography so uh, it was really good to to hear him and uh, you know uh, he's a very knowledgeable guy so uh, um i hope i can uh, try and follow up with something useful for people to listen to well i'm sure you can and uh, i'm just just thinking now as, as far as giving you a proper uh, introduction andrew actually knows you so uh, i think hmm. i'm going to hand back over to andrew now and he can uh, do a little introduction and then we'll, we'll we'll move into some questions and such right well hello simon simon hello uh, Stephen. <laughs> hi andy you just have to blame my cold so it, folks i've known steve for a while now not not all that many years but uh, we were interacting on uh, on social media and i ended up buying my large format in larger from him and was that the first time we'd met i can't really remember I think that. It was the first, that was the first time we met um, met, met physically life happens on the uh, in uh, virtual realms these days yeah. so, so I, I went round to steve's house and, and came away with a devere 504 in larger but not before we uh, spent a lovely hour or so together and we've since met up a few times our mutual love of landscape and uh, steve's uh, at the time fascination with the fenlands drew me to him and then he made me buy a fuji gw 690 um, <laughs> and i've just admired him so very much i had the privilege to go and see his his exhibition that he did with his collective called inside the outside which we'll talk about that was in nottingham and uh, had a little workshop with john blakemore and, and that weekend will just live with me forever and steve had some of his work on display there and you know the thought he's he's a real thoughtful photographer uh, not at all snap happy he thinks more about his photography than most people i interact with and I think it's just a wonderful example to set. So welcome, Steve. Um, thank you. I, I don't know what to say with uh, Andy, but um, but yeah, no. I, um, it was uh, it was a pleasure. Obviously, we we have gone back a long time, and uh, you know, I think that you've been uh, to a degree following me on my little journey. Uh, with yeah, absolutely. It's been good, and we've managed to hook you up with uh, Graham Vasey as well. I think you're 
going on a date with him, aren't you? Soon? You have. We do. We have a date on uh, on Saturday. Um, not not to go. Uh, we might talk about photography, but uh, he's actually going to teach me to fly fish. So um, yeah, that would be fantastic because he takes. He, that's his other passion. So he 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 often combines the two by having photographs that he's taken in some fancy angling magazine. Yeah, he does. So um, so yes, yeah, so I'm I'm quite excited about that. Whereabouts are you going? Are you going over towards his neck of the woods? Yes, up to Bishop Auckland area. Um, yeah, um, up to the Tees somewhere. I'll give him my best wishes and tell him that. When, when the caravan arrives, I shall be uh, camping outside his door. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> Simon, over to you, mate. Um, okay, well, I think this would be a, a good time to ask that immortal question. Uh, as, as Explain the Scheinflug principle. <laughs> that one. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah, let's do that one first. Let's, let's start off with the, with the, with the easy one. So uh, that word that uh, Andrew just said, uh, would you explain that principle, please? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll get him warmed up a bit first and have it. he needs to drink a couple of glasses of red wine. Then yeah. at some point during the conversation, I've been, I'll, I've slip been, it, I'll slip it back in again. I've been giving it some thought and because and, uh, Andy did, uh, did give me the heads up that, that maybe uh, something he'd be interested in discussing. So I've been thinking of all sorts of analogies and metaphors and various ways to actually describe it from a, from a, uh, from a, from a, from a radio or a listening perspective um, and then decided to just give up completely because it just wouldn't work. I think the best thing to do is go on YouTube and type in Scheimflug or even how to focusing or movements for large format cameras. There's a, one or two good ones out there, aren't there? Yeah, there are. And it is, uh, it's, it's, it's a good subject to play with from a technical perspective in terms of getting everything yeah. focused. I just think about it in terms of railway lines um, and um, ice cream cones. Good. Well, on that note, <laughs> ask him something easier, Simon. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Andrew, Andrew obviously knows you well, uh, but for the but for the benefit of uh, uh, our listeners uh, that uh, know you less well, uh, perhaps you might want to tell us a bit a bit about yourself, about how you uh, perhaps how you got into into photography in the first place, and uh, and your your journey to to large format photography. To tell us a bit about what you're doing these days. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, well, my interests was sparked early in life, I guess, and um, way, way back uh, when my uncle um, visited from Australia and he um, he bought my dad um, a Pentax K1000, which was hot off the press at that time. So you're talking mid-70s, um, uh, which I still own the camera, believe it or not. Um, my dad wasn't particularly um, interested in photography, um, and a few years later... I was, uh, as I got a bit older, I, you know, discovered, well, actually, um, I'd quite like to find out how you make photographs and print. So I taught myself to, bought a little Patterson, um, you know, all in one kit with a little enlarger, blanked out the bathroom and made a real mess in my, this was in my early teens, um, and taught myself to develop film print, um, at an early age and, and, I guess that it, it sort of it stuck with me from there. Um, fast forward, probably twenty years um, to my early thirties, um, following the careers and various stuff in rugby and motorcycle racing and a whole load of other things that I've done, which I probably shouldn't have. Um, 
and and you know rediscovered um, photography. Started a lot of walking in the Lake District. Um, obviously, while you're walking in the marvelous landscape, um, you, you get drawn to um, to image making, and and it sort of like pulled me back in. Um, firstly, with a digital camera, and shortly after. So it's the first of the five Ds. So that that give you an idea of how long ago it was. Um, and um, but quickly got enamoured with digital photography because of um, being stuck in front of a computer all day. I um, went back to film, bought myself a an RZ sixty seven, and and film wasn't really that fashionable at that time. It was still a um, you know a little known, but it was the way that I'd learned to photograph, and I think that. Going back, um, I've always been a, should we say, an Ansel Adams um, person. I'd sort of, I loved his landscape work. Um, he'd always been there as a, a beacon to follow. And then I think that once you have that training in terms of understanding about negatives and around developing the own film and having that personal, um, personal, uh, influence over the image right from you know printing and and um and printing is a, a you know very has always been important to me um that that you produce an an item or an article that you know a print which has got an awful lot of hands-on um involvement in the process and that's that's something that i'm um still hold not not for any reason um just because that's the way i like to do it um so so from there obviously um i then have moved forward with my photo uh, with my photography and it's moved in a in a variety of ways uh, as i've as i say learned learned about the world through photography um and and that's where i am today really um obviously inside the outside is something that's happened over the last three years and uh, that um joe al rob um, and myself um, is a big part of our lives now um, in terms of what we're trying to achieve with that. So, um, so yeah, I've, uh, I guess I've come a long way, but um, it's it's through collaboration and learning um, over that, that over that. So the l large format will will come on to inside the yeah, outside in a minute because that's a really interesting story. I think how you came to be one of the founding members of that little collective and the reasons reasons behind it in fact it's probably going to form the body of what we talk about it's going to spin off from your involvement with that collective yeah we can we can probably explain that to folks listening in a moment but you you stopped short of your just to satisfy the gear people <laughs> amongst us and just for our american listeners what steve was referring to was actually an rz 67 <laughs> so um, just so we don't confuse you over there yeah um, we have quite a lot of American listeners, and we don't want to alienate them, do we? No. So, um, so you, 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 um, you, have you still got your RZ? See? No, I didn't. I sold it actually. Um, I've, I've replaced it with some um, some lovely Fuji cameras that I love. So uh, yes, yes. That's my medium format camera. So your medium um, format camera of choice now is the GW six nineteen mainly. Yeah, mainly the GW. Um, mm -hmm. I I do like the GSW, but it's a bit too wide for some of the subjects that I like to photograph. So. And with large format, are you now exclusively 810 or do you Ooh, shoot no. the 4.5 as well? Um, well, that's interesting you say that. Um, so I started off with 4.5. Um, 
uh, moved quickly to 810 um, and I guess I, I missed that uh, actually in terms of why there's a there's a guy a photographer very uh, very well known photographer in America and I have to say for the American listeners that actually most of my influence from a photography perspective on an early from an early perspective and when I returned to photography actually is it comes from America so Matt and uh, a lot of the photographers on the large format photography and, and if you listen back there's a lot of influences of Matt's which are very similar to my own um, so that's what the interest in large format photography really came was from um, following and what was looking at what was going on in America mainly through the analog photographers user group uh, APUG as it was as I knew it um, so that's still that's still going I think isn't it yeah, it is. It's not. Uh, I think Facebook and other social for uh, media forums have sort of have usurped it. But it was um, it, it was in its day the go to place for for film um, users to to actually connect. Um, the UK had also had Film Wasters, which was another group that I sort of briefly inter interacted with. Well, that's Leon Taylor and his and cohorts, isn't it? Yeah, that is. I don't know what happened to them because they were they seemed to they were putting out a podcast, weren't they? And then they did some video casts. Yeah, uh, a lot I, of really, I don't know what happened to film wasters. It sort of um it, again, I think it's just one of those progressions of digital media really. It, it sort of uh it, it it's it's drifted I still see some some of the people on there, but they're um, they're also more uh, prolific on other on other platforms, and I think that's just the nature of the the old um, style of uh, forum. Um, it's changed, but um, but yeah, but I think that large format wise, no. So eight eight by ten now is my um, is my my go to large format. Um, I I have uh, another camera which. Um, I well, I, I bought last year. Um, we talked the other day about I was making a twelve by twenty, um, which still exists, uh, unfinished. And if I'm honest with you, I just ran out of time, and uh, I have now got a Richard Ritter um, twelve by twenty that I um, I have a project ongoing at the moment, but haven't uh, used that much prolifically. But at twenty five pounds for a sheet of film, you don't use it very often so who's that sorry steve richard ritter, uh, richard ritter. um it's a, a it's a it's a beautifully made handmade camera by richard himself um an int really interesting character um it's uh handmade um out of carbon fiber and cnc mm. out of aircraft alloy so it's very very light um for something that big um and i can quite easily carry it it's not far off my, what my eight by ten weighs uh, so with with dark slides as well, all come from America. Um, so yes, yeah, so I'm 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 loving doing that, and actually that's the um, it, it's the upshot of uh, and what got me into large format photography was a guy called Ken Ryo, Ken Rowizu, who you may um, may know. He's a, an American who's shot a lot in Cambodia. Um, Uses a twelve by uh, sorry fourteen by twenty that was made uh, specifically for him by Deardorff, um, and his books um, really got me into both platinum printing and ultra large format photography because that's predominantly what he does. Um, and so, so this project I'm now working on is a is a bit of a 
culmination of all my large format um, experience. So um, I'm really enjoying just uh, taking my time with that, which is um, yeah, it's been great. So are you using the 1220 Richard Ritter camera much? What, how much did you say a sheet of film was? Uh, it's 25 pounds. So, yeah. So your 25, pound, your 25 box of film cost you 500 quid. Ooh! <laughs> and However, I... when you're using it for platinum printing, yeah. um, the, the, the benefit is actually if you're making digital internegatives, by the time you've bought a printer, the ink, um, the media to print it on, um, and, and taking all of that into consideration with scanning and all the rest, actually there isn't that much different in price. So what you're kind of saying there, I think, to r roll it back into into layman's terms, if you're going to – so platinum printing is, is what we might just call an alternative form of printmaking, which I know you do. And, uh, yeah. and there are several ways. You can either use an original negative from your camera. Uh, you can use four or five negatives straight on. That's probably uh, a little bit on the small side, but make some nice contact prints. Or you can use eight by ten straight onto your um, – uh, onto your treated paper, uh, or you can print out a negative from a digital file. But I guess sensibly for most people, eight by ten would be the maximum. But you're you're producing a negative in your camera of twelve twenty. But if if folks wanted to do that digitally, a twelve by twenty, uh, well, you'd need a printer, wouldn't you? That would take twelve by twenty sheets of acetate, presumably. Yeah, that's right. Um, which, of course, now you, you can go bigger than much, much bigger than that, and still have a. You can build, you know, make a neg uh, an inter-negative or um, a digital negative, any any size that you can print a digital print. It's the uh, yeah. same process. But you use you use di digital negs, did, didn't you? Because I remember you spending a lot of time hitting on the right calibration, <laughs> producing a digital negs. I seem to remember that and. Uh, my eyes glazed over as you were trying to explain it to me one day. Yeah, so um, so the, the the issue with digital negatives is that you you have to make a um, a negative that will print the right values um, from your printer. Um, I'm not going to go into the technical technicalities of that because there's a lot more people out there who are far more experienced with that than I am. All I did was uh, followed the steps and uh, gone through the calibration, which arrives. At when I print it, I know that what values that I want to see on the screen will come out on the uh, uh, on, on the finished print. But yes, yeah, this, so, this is purely for platinum printing. Um, not necessarily, no. No, for you, I mean. For me, yeah, platinum printing. Well, and um, although it's a completely different um, inter-negative, it's, it's actually a positive. But I also use that for photogravures as well, um, which is where you're making a print. Um, Using ink um, and an, an intaglio print press, like an etching press um, that you use, and but you make the plate through using photopolymers, um, and you use a, a digital positive for that. Well, I can I can hear people shouting at the at the podcast now, saying, "Well, huh? Explain that in a bit more detail." <laughs> but uh, maybe maybe take us through the the platinum process because I've bored people with discussions about salt printing here and yeah. there over the last year or so so and there's cyanotype is very popular and that and that's seen as an easy way into this sort of world of alternative but why should anybody want to make a platinum print and what is a platinum print 
Um, so the um, platinum printing is is a is a process that was very um, goes back to late nineteenth century, early twentieth, but became sort of unpopular after the First World War because they ran out of platinum because it was a big part of um, the weapons that were used in the First World War. Um, but essentially, you're, you're going back to a coating process of a piece of paper. So rather than having a piece of paper that you have with normal um, photographic printing where you've got a gelatin that sits on the surface and the silver nitrate is embedded within that gelatin surface, what you do is you have the, the raw chemicals that you reconstitute, mix together um, in the right combination um, and you um, apply that emulsion um, to the paper itself so it then sinks into the paper, becomes part of um, the paper um, and that uh, within that there is a um, photosensitive chemical. What is that? Because in, in, I mean, silver nitrate is used certainly in, in, for making salt prints. Is it, is it silver nitrate in platinum no. print or is it something else? No, it's ferric oxalate. Uh, okay. Is is, uh, is that the same as cyanotype? Do they use that as well? Is that? Uh, is that I'll be honest with you. I've never done cyanotypes. <laughs> it rings a bell anyway. Ferric oxalate does. Maybe it's just because I've been reading about platinum printing. Yeah, I think it's so. so it's, I think that from a light sensitivity, you, you usually have an iron based, um, which is where the ferric oxalate comes into it. And it right. Yeah. Right. The palladium and the other metals. Um, so it's a, so it's an iron based. Um, process again i'm not i'm not um that that uh, and you are you coating it on watercolor paper or some other uh, yes you, you need to because of the the nature of the chemicals involved it needs to be an acidic um paper which is a bit of a pain these days because all papers are buffered with alkali right. uh, buffers to stop the the acidification so you, you actually have to acidify normal watercolor paper um or um, you can buy things like Hanamula have got a, a platinum-specific paper, um, as do Archers. They do an Archers platine, which I particularly like um, as the paper I usually use, unless I'm using a, an acidified or paper that I have to acidify myself, which I tend to use um, Fabriano Artistico, which I really, really like, because it's more of a natural a natural coloured paper. It's not so white. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, uh, this is the problem with... with uh, with platinum printing and, and printing in general, once you get into papers mm. uh, and you felt a lovely watercolor paper, and uh, to be honest with you, it's even worse with uh, etching papers because the, they, the world gets even even bigger. Um, you, you can uh, really experiment with just all of these myriads of beautiful watercolor um, papers, and, um, and it's, it's fascinating. Am I right in, if I said, photography large format photography or any kind of photography is really for you more of a means to the end and the print is the key means of expression is that is that fair uh yes um i, I cannot hide it but um um that is the the end result for me is is a print um that is a that is a physical uh, being um in itself um so yeah and that's not necessarily i mean these days from a camera, it could be other printmaking processes. Yeah, I, th I think the um, gosh, um, I think that for me, the the print itself becomes the output of um, your endeavour, um, and that the 
the way that you then render that print and the way that you present it, um, whether that be on a gallery wall or whether or not you have a, a you know, a cork board in your office um, where you can just ping prints to it so you can look at it, refer to it. I've got a little um, easel that I just chuck prints on and mm. live with for a little while. Um, part of that is around the enjoyment of actually revisiting that image. And I think that's the bit for me is that um, whenever you go to, to make a photograph, the process that you go through and the thought that goes into it is it for me is not a flippant um act um it's done with intent it is done for a reason um and therefore you you consider that reason all the way through your process so when you take the image especially with large formats you can see where i'm going in terms of you need to do that with large format cameras you can't be flippant with a with an eight by ten or even a five by four. It takes twenty minutes or so to set yourself up, and I think that that's as you go through the process of developing the negative, um, um, realizing the negative, looking at what you may then do, whether it be with silver gelatin or whether you scan it, amend it, um, build a an inter negative that you then make a platinum print with. Um, all of that process you, you you think about the image and what it is you're trying to convey um through that process um and and the image itself changes and it morphs and in you know little happy accidents happen and you know sometimes the best negative in the world has got a scratch right across it or you misdevelop it or it's fogged um and, and it, it you know it it sits with you and well that's just the way it is and i think that's um some of that serendipity that comes into the whole process um, I feel engaged and more uh, involved with that rather than just uh, looking at a visual uh, representation. Wow. Well, I, uh, Simon, Sorry. you say something. I've got lots to say, but you, you say something. I'm, I'm perfectly happy listening to the two of you talking at the moment, so you, you carry on. <laughs> Steve, are you, are you pre-visualising stuff or are you or you or are you doing a bit of that and then things are changing as you uh, as you go through that stage you know do, are you are you realizing the vision right from the beginning and you end up with that or are you sort of working towards it through the sort of various stages of the, the head towards the print um it i think it grows it, i suppose it grows for me andy through the process i think that you, you tend to you may pre-visualize something, but as you work your way through it and you um, your your mindset changes, mm -hmm. so then does the final image. So, you know, you can produce a, a really good negative um, and then you can realize a print which is a very, very light print. And I think John Blakemore, who you mentioned earlier, is a master, um, an absolute master at, at realization of a negative the negative is just a you know that's like a um, a blank sheet of paper I, I guess um and then he can create um a real artwork from that negative and, and it can be a dark image a light image he can do yes. whatever he wants with it and i think that's the real skill of a, of a printmaker um, so just for the folks out there we touched on this a little bit with matt uh, but i think it's worth Re revisiting in fact it's worth revisiting on on many shows i think this you, you said it i think you used the term good 
good negative or or word like that. <laughs> and I know what you mean. And I, and certainly having had my negatives ripped apart by aforementioned Mr. Blakemore. <laughs> we did mine as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, and listening to him in some detail about, um, you know, his his very repeatable process to, to end up with a good negative. What, what, what do we mean by that? What, 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 how can he get like a light rendered print or a dark rendered print and change things according to his mood or his whim? What, what allows him that flexibility? How does his workflow allow him to do that? Um, I think it is very much around that ability to um, capture on the piece of film all of the information that you uh, need to capture. Um, I think Matt gave a really good description of, 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 of how he sees it. I guess looking at it from, from those people who are used to a digital, looking at a histogram or, or when they're scanning their film, you'll, you know, you've got a, a range of tones that go from black um, to white. And the skill involved is knowing that um, any piece of film you, you will only capture we'll say, let's say seven stops, let's be kind, um, of information that goes from black to white. Um, and so you have to squeeze it into those seven stops from black to white. And are you, uh, when you say from black to white, including in those seven stops, now I know people will say, oh, sometimes that's 10 stops. Mm. Are you, to me, I would be thinking actually at the extremes, you're talking about pure black with no detail and almost pure white with no detail. And then once you move away from those two extremes, then you start to get the, which brings you to sort of five stops. Then you start to get some detail. Is that, is that kind of what you're thinking? Yeah. It's around having something, having a negative be that you can capture as, um, as many, um, as many areas between those five or seven stops or naught to a hundred um, or zero to 255, depending on what way you want to look at it, um, is, is having that range of tones that you can reproduce um, across that. Now, um, I think one of the things with John's negatives is if you look at his negatives, to me, they always look really thin. Um, now, when I, call, when I say thin, I mean there isn't, um, there's not a lot of darkness to the negative. So... Um, my negatives tend to be much darker. Um, if you look at somebody like uh, Michael Kenner's images, very dark. Um, Matt's, I think if you look at his pictures of his negatives online, you'll see that they're what I would call um, a middle negative in terms of he, he captures it as a um, quite a medium. And then John Blakemore's the other end where I think he's a quite thin um, and I think there's a guy also mentioned last time, Bill Schwab, and you look at his, he, he tends to, ha to have quite thin negatives. The whole uh, issue that you're relating is that any one of those negative densities will still produce the tonal range from 0 to 100 or 0 to 255 or the five stops. It just yeah, when you're stops. when you're using these figures like two five five, this is a doubling. So this is like two four eight sixteen, two four eight sixteen, thirty two sixty four one two eight. Uh, which is, a, is that right? Mm, so, no, it's the two. So on on Photoshop, if you look at Photoshop on a histogram, um, it goes from naught to two five five in terms of its different tones of grey. 
Yeah, but uh, that, I think that does relate to the average scene in terms of ratio of highlights to darkness. They say, like, yeah, the average scene is at either one to eight to one or two five five to one, which is a doubling of the light values as you go through. So, the, the, but they use that in Photoshop as well. Yes. So it's it's, it's purely that uh, um, that capturing of all of the information. Once you've captured all of that information, um, then um, you can from that negative print it either as a very, very light um, high key image or you can photograph it as a very, very uh, print it as a very, very dark image. But that allows you as the um, artist or printer to then come up with those tones and then make of it as, as you will. And obviously then the dodging and burning as part of that process lets you emphasize certain elements or uh, dampen them down. So as opposed to so a negative where you're not able to do that describe a negative where you're not able to do that uh so if you've got say for an example um a very high contrast negative um where you're shooting say a silhouette against um a, a bright background of sky so a tree that's silhouetted against a um a bright background you would just have black and white you, you wouldn't have um, tones of grey, and it's the tones of grey that, um, for me, you will see the difference between what I call a fine print is around what is the tonal gradation that you see, and that's my love of platinum and photogravure, albumin prints are what they, um, they're they a very um, sort of a low contrast um, way of printing so that you, um, you have a very long tonal scale. Um, whereas opposed to the, um, shall we say, some of the Japanese, um, you know, the Japanese 35 mil photography, um, the mm. Ravens, for example, very high contrast. Um, yeah, and the work of the Hong Kong photography shot in the uh, Fan Fan Ho, very dramatic use of light, but yeah. often with very blocked out shadows. Uh, yeah, very, very graphic in nature. Very yeah. Which a lot of people like, you know. And, yeah, you know. I like, you know, it's, it's, it's a style. Um, yeah. So you, you're, uh, you, you're, you end up with a picture like that if you're, if you're just not worried about the shadows where they – if you're not at all worried about the shadows or you're not at all worried about the highlights, you accept they're going to just have no detail in them and, you know, you, you end up with a very dark – um, featureless shadows and no matter what you do you can't have what john blakemore would call a does he call it a living shadow i think yeah. he has a term for it doesn't he a living black a living black yeah and you have to see one of his prints in your hand to understand what he means so he's talking about black with tonality almost isn't he yeah it's, it's that 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 bit in, uh, I guess Ansel Adams would probably set it at probably a, um, a zone two or zone three, actually, in terms of yeah. it's black, but you can still see that yeah. light detail. And, and I think John as well, because John has a very simple process. He shot with one camera. Well, I think he's digital now, but he did shoot with his MPP and one lens, and he used FP4 for much of his work. And I, I remember him telling me ID 11, one plus one for, I think, eight minutes, <laughs> something yeah, like that. that and if, if, a, if a scene had more than four stops between where he wanted some detail in the shadows and where he wants some detail in the highlights, then he'd start adjusting his development regime, I think. Yep. Um, and, you know, he, he's 
that process for him has not changed in no. you know many many years so what what are the benefits of having a, a process like that which is just so simplified and second second nature to you um i think i guess the thing is it's, it's around control it's around knowing that once you've realized an image or you've seen an image that you want to convey um how do you replicate that onto a piece of paper um and you, you need to know the steps um through that process to then get you to where you want to be and 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 that's around timing and understanding of what your cameras do and i think that your equipment um is one of those things with especially with large format um cameras is that they are so um uh, adjustable um, not just from composition but from um you know using swings and tilts um you've got everything that you need in your repertoire in, in your hands um it's then for you as the photographer to then make a decision around um how you want to represent the image that you have in front of you now um it's uh, it's, it's just that that whole thoughtful process and understanding your equipment and i think it was interesting i saw recently on a forum somewhere that somebody was um my other um my fuji um gw690 is is you know my go-to travel camera it's a bit big for most people but um um and they were saying it's too con the lens is too contrasty you know and i'm like yes it does have a very contrasty and very sharp lens but you can compensate that with development and your exposure. So understanding your equipment will allow you to then make those um, make those judgments so that you, you, you render what you want to render at the end of the day. So I wouldn't want to preach to people. Well, not much. Anyone who knows me knows I wouldn't want to preach to anybody. But really, I, I would say... Just become for who's chuntering in the background? Is that you, Mr. Simon? It, it may well be. Yeah. So, <laughs> but a thorough understanding, you know, keep it simple. I think Matt was talking about, you know, the film of the month tendency, scanning it, and just, you know, people saying, well, what developer should I use for this film? What about this film? How does this? Uh, people continually searching for the holy grail. Whatever, whatever film you use, whatever developer you use you will make some if, if you work at it you'll make some beautiful images and yep and if you can if you can do, have that john blakemore approach where it's second the equipment becomes second nature to you then it frees up his vision doesn't it it allows him to just get on and be open his creative side yeah and you know i think that it's um something that i've always worked with um is is around lens choice um is around well, Simon's just woken up. I know. <laughs> um, you know, one of the, the keys for me around that is around um, what's my lens choice? Well, actually, it's basically anything as close as I can get to a 50mm on a 35mm camera. Ah. So that's um, so, so I use the human eye, if you like, uh, as the basis for my lens choice. It's not always possible, but... Uh, yeah, sort of 45-degree angle of view sort of thing or whatever it is, 40-something, isn't it? Yeah, it's um, it's, it's uh, in, interestingly, that's what's got my interest with with panoramic cameras, and uh, you know, the twelve twenty is obviously slightly panoramic. It's not ultra panoramic, um, but my field of view, and I don't know about everybody else's, but my field of view is panoramic in nature. It's not 
Um, yeah, Steve has eyes set on the side of his head if you've ever met him. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, um, um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things. But know your equipment. And if you, if you, if, if you can erase um, all of the, um, the, the things that you can't control, um, then you can start using your tools uh, as you would. And if you look at great painters, Turners and the Van Goghs of this world, they all use the same um, the same tones, the same paints, the same way. They do it in a different way and it, and it would look completely differently. But the basics of their approach was was consistent. And I think that's the thing that, that certainly listening to John and, and Matt said the same thing. It's certainly my um, process. Eliminate the... Um, the inconsistencies and you're going to be more successful in terms of rendering what it is that you saw when you took the image. Thanks, Steve. That's, uh, that's great. In a minute, I'd like to lead you on to your work with inside the outside, but uh, would you be okay if I just read an email out to you and see if you can help us with a, a couple of questions? I'll try. So um, we've had an email from James Thorpe, in fact, we've had a couple of emails from James Thorpe, but this one in chronological history. Great episode, gents. So lovely to hear more about the lovely Rachel and her photographic journey. I was especially moved by her work with dementia groups. Yeah, me too. What a brilliant way not only to share your hobby stroke profession, but also to contribute to the community. Hope all was well that ended well with the last minute drama that cut Rachel's visit short. Well, it was, James. It was all fine. So James has a couple of what he refers to as newbie questions. But actually, you know, I think there's no such thing as a, uh, well, I suppose there is a newbie question. But I mean, when he asked this, I thought, actually, you know what? That's a pretty good question. And I've been at it a little while. So he says, number one, spirit levels. I've seen them on some large format cameras, mainly field cameras, it seems. And I'm not sure why I'd ever want to use a spirit level. Surely, if I'm lining up a photo on the ground glass, then I'm leveling the horizon or straightening verticals or composing the shot to my taste. So why would I need to know if the camera was, quotes, level, question mark, Stephen? Um, so uh, it's a good question. Um, and I think it's around how you establish you know, the image that you're looking to achieve um, and what are you looking to use your large format camera for? Um, the temptation is with any camera is that you just, you tilt it upwards, downwards um, in order to um, achieve the composition that you would normally like. With a large format camera, what you're doing is that you're actually working from a, um, a static base, which is... Um, square to the um, object so for example if you're taking a picture of a tree um, you would want the tree or potentially you would want the tree to be um, square with no convergence so it's not um, converging to you or away from you in terms of um, the lens distortion that's created by um, moving the film plane um, in, in any one direction because of the, the there's mostly on uh, wide angle lenses where you get that effect. It's the same with buildings where they start falling over um, away from you and, and they're getting pointy at the top even though they're actually square. So with a large format camera, you're using uh, rise and fall 
to maintain the perspective um, um, to the film plane and enabling you to capture, um, you know, particularly high buildings or of that ilk without that distortion of convergence of the verticals. So you keep them square. So that's what it's mainly used, um, mainly used for. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. I, for me as well, it's, um, it's about getting myself in the right frame of mind, you know, and if I know if everything's set at zero, which I do, because you told me to all those years ago, <laughs> then, um, then I'm getting my large format head on as opposed to my Holger head or my pinhole head. And I think it's, it's around when, once you establish where neutral is, you can then step outside of that creatively. If you look at a lot of large format landscape photographers, um, and probably Joe Cornish is some someone that most people will be aware of, especially color photographers. Mm -hmm. um, and there's always a lot of foreground um, interest, you know, big rocks and, and streams and, you know, grasses and color in the foreground that then opens into a big vista with mountains in the background, you know, Bukalit even more. There's an awful lot of those sorts of images out there. Um, using um, a, um, a large format create, uh, cameras creatively because they're actually distorting the perspective of the foreground um, by doing the opposite to, to what I've suggested and being square. If, if you start altering the perspective and using a lot of um, rear tilt um, and um, or, or, you know, forward tilt, uh, rear tilt um rear tilt makes if you've got a big rock we touched on this with matt didn't we so listeners you just need to go back and make sure that steve doesn't say the opposite to matt yeah <laughs> <laughs> matt knows better. not matt no ben horn it was it ben was horn, ben because he, he did it on one of his clever, um, other clever guests we have <laughs> yeah because ben ben was talking about an image where he'd made the uh the, the foreground it was that shot he did over the salt plains of death all over the plains of death valley with, with lots of cracked mud and he, and i think he put a bit of back uh, tilted the back towards him you know yeah uh, and that just altered that front perspective of the of the made it slightly bigger but it didn't then affect the rest of the image it just made that sort of more interesting closer to the camera made that That's foreground right. interest more dominating yeah if you, if you think about um because the obviously on your ground glass the image is upside down so the foreground is at the top if you move the top of your camera and you tilt it back towards you then the um the the foreground the, the, the bottom of your ground glass which is the top of the image will appear smaller um, and the foreground will grow larger because it's further away so the it, it's um it's that change of perspective that allows you to then distort um, reality if that's what you want to, to do. And it, and it can be used quite creatively. And starting from zero just helps you get your head around all of this, doesn't it? If you want to, if you want to have a repeatable understanding of the, of the creative use of the large format camera. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly that. Because a lot of the, um, um, you know, the, the, the changes that you can make, you can do from um you know standing um in front of that ground glass and altering um purely using the tools that are built into the camera itself that's that's obviously with uh, with cameras with lots of tilts and swings and um some obviously don't um your crown graphics and the light obviously are slightly more complicated um but um 
but yeah, that's that's why I always like to start from a a straightforward position. You do get some um, spirit levels on the side of uh, some cameras, which are there so that you know um, that you're square when you start off with. Obviously, they will change as you then apply tilt and swings and rise and fall. So, um, so it allows you to get back to a neutral position because sometimes you can confound yourself with with movements so you never actually get back to having the image which is totally in focus so it's a good place to start yeah thanks thanks steve great question well great part question james the second part if i can read it to you Stephen. tripod head it's time for me to get serious and invest in a good quality tripod head obviously the three-way geared heads are the sexy way to go but the pr their prices are astronomical compared to just a sturdy ball head. I can see how a three-way head would be useful for a pro photographer who was doing something like pre precision architectural work. But for someone like myself, who's just a hobbyist, is it overkill? What's your experience? Um, well, um, tripod heads... Um, yeah, geared heads are nice because they, they, they introduce a, a fingertip um, solution to getting everything nice and square. Um, if I'm honest with you, a self-leveling tripod head. Are you okay, Andrew? <laughs> before I reach up onto the top of my cupboard and bring down my Manfrotto head, I should really have mute the mic before I, <laughs> all my pinhole cameras in making fell down on top of me. <laughs> Uh, you can edit that out if you like, or leave it in. For no, the, no, no. Well, that's for the we'll, jolly we'll moment that it was. We we keep accidents in. <laughs> I was going to say tripod heads, obviously there for for producing ultimate stability, which Andrew has just totally not um, <laughs> demonstrated. Um, just just to remind you, you you're just starting to talk about geared heads uh, to 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 a, to a degree. Yeah, I think that the tripod heads um, come in all shapes and sizes, and actually. The one that I've that I use most, and especially if you're going ultra large format size, is that you end up with a what they call a self leveling head, which is just basically a flat plate. Um, so there's very there's minimal adjustment in it. So you you actually use the length of the tripod legs to to establish a um, a sound footing, and you don't really move much from that. And you use the the movements, you know, again rise and fall, um, uh, shift. Um, to, to compose the image as you would as you would want it. So so actually you can uh, you don't need some multi adjustable super duper um, geared head. Uh, most people use them. Um, I don't. I use believe it or not a ball head. Um, but um, I have if I was to really looking at price and and um, just having an ultra large format camera, I would just go with a with a self-leveling head, but they're actually very difficult to come across now. They don't really, uh, they don't really make them. I thought you had a, uh, the, I've got this head, which is it really heavy? Uh, and I, uh, and yeah, that's why I don't have it anymore. <laughs> yeah. It's the 029 Mark II Manfrotto, the one with the octagonal plate in. Uh, yeah, I've, I've still got that actually. That's now yeah. bolted to a, um, um, a column that I have a rip rec, um, studio, Base on wheels that I've got. Um, this, this is a beast. This this head, and I've given up using it because it just give me a hernia. Yeah, you don't want to drop it on your foot. No, but I use a pan tilt 
Manfrotto head. In fact, I've got I've got two of them on different tripods, and I can't uh, I can't reach far enough without causing another accident. Yeah, there we go. I've got it. There we go. So I'm using. So I don't have carbon fiber fiber tripods because I don't hike anywhere. So I don't know if James is, you know, weight weight is possibly a consideration because I've just got aluminium. I've got my main go-to tripod is a 055 uh, X Pro B Manfrotto tripod, which is pretty chunky. But I just use it out the back of the car, and it's got the 804 RC2 Manfrotto pan tilt head on and that's perfectly adequate in fact i could probably stick an 8x10 camera on it quite well if if i had one but i wouldn't want to carry it up a mountain because it's um, the tripod and the head are still pretty <clears throat> still pretty heavy so, so james i don't know whether you're you know hiking long ways or walking out the back of your car working out the back of your car but that, that would be a consideration, Steve, wouldn't it, really, yeah. for weight? Yeah, but, and, and I think that all of those things, you, you choose your equipment according to what job you need it to do. And I think yeah. that's the, you, you can go for something really simple. Um, you can just screw the tripod into the bottom of your camera um, yep. if, if you want to. Um, and then what, almost like you were saying, so you then, it, you're then using your tripod legs up and down, left and right, to, to get it level. Yep. And that would probably be a very sturdy platform, actually. Yeah, and a lot of the, you know, like I say, the ultra-large format, the old, should we say, old-style cameras, that's the way that it would that, that it would work. Um, there isn't, there's minimal adjustment. You've just got three legs off the bottom of your, of a large camera. Um, my Vagis, well, I've got a wet plate camera, Vagiswari, which is, that comes with a, a big round, it's got like a, the size of a, um, a small plate, it's about eight inches round and and you just screw the camera into that and the legs come off the bottom of it and that's it um so you know you, you, you but as you just mentioned weight is a, is an issue um if you are walking long distances a lot of my work does involve walking um you you, you know weight is a is something that is uh, you need to con consider i've got a couple of observations about tripods uh one i i uh, with a half plate camera that uh, is currently on loan to Andrew at the moment. Uh, that yeah, actually came with a. Bag. a I'm looking at it now. It's in a bag on the floor. I've yeah. not done anything with it since you lent it to me. Yeah. Well, that came. That actually came with a, a tripod as well. It's, it might have been a, a Gandolfi tripod, possibly, uh, and that had very limited movement. It just had um, uh, just a tilt for, forwards and backwards, and that that was it. Uh, but the well, when you're talking about the self-leveling and you you move the uh, the, the the tripod legs, um, I I was pretty much trying to do that with this this particular camera, and I just felt like I was just getting lower and lower and lower until the so every every time I made an adjustment, I just uh, thought, well, that's not quite right there, so I'll drop this bit <laughs> and that bit. So uh, it's a bit like trying to level a table by cutting bits ex off. Exactly, ex exactly that. <laughs> so um, at least it didn't rattle because it was you know, three legs instead of four. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's, that's one observation if you're stupid like me. Um, and uh, another uh, pro tip on, on tripods is uh, how well the head will actually secure um, the, the, the camera. Uh, mm. Because, I mean, you know, lot, lot, well, certainly my uh, Meridian camera to, to put a, um, <clears throat> excuse me, 
a film holder into it, it requires quite a bit of force on on the on the camera. And uh, if your if your tripod can't actually, or the ball head, or what a two way or three way, whatever it is, if it, if you can't be truly locked in the position, then you can completely ruin your composition just by you know, mm. putting, loading your uh, your film in there. So that uh, the the tripod I'm currently using, it's uh, it's something that I, I I picked up with a, a job lot of other gear, and I thought, oh, okay, I'll I'll give this a go. It's a big, it's a heavy thing, an elevator tripod. Uh, forget what the actual make is, um, but it's got really really big hang handles on it to uh to so you can get some really good purchase in tightening the head up to the point where it will not move you know so uh and i found the fact that i can actually use that one and i don't have to worry about losing the position of uh, my composition uh, to be a, a you know really really useful and one other uh, point is uh um depending on the kind of uh camera that you have i mean with with my meridian which is looks like a press camera but it's 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 basically uh, a rip off of a, a 40s um, linoff technica and uh, so you've got the ability to drop the drop the bed when you put a wide angle lens on um but you that that's uh, act of dropping the bed can actually get in the it can foul um the the mechanism of the tripod so you want to be able to check if you've got that kind of large format camera that you are actually able to drop the bed and, and still have the thing uh properly attached to the tripod i think if you can go somewhere like for example wex photographic just on the outskirts of norwich um which i think i've bought at least one tripod there they have an online presence but if you can go and take your camera with you you, you can try out a variety of tripods and heads and get a feel for what works for you. Yeah. James. So he says, last, lastly, James says, uh, just want to give an unsponsored shout out to a guy in the States who goes by the Instagram handles of 20th Century Camera and hashtag Jeffrey.who. I guess he must be the same person. But I'll put the links in the show notes. He's creating some amazing 3D printed large format accessories for Graflex. Graflex RBs. Does he mean? Um, does he mean the um, when he says Graflex RBs? I wonder, uh, James, do you mean like the RB67? Because that have a that has a Graflex. Andrew, I've, I've just gone onto the uh, Instagram page there, yep. and I recognise these photographs uh, because okay. it's a chap that is now posting in our group, uh, oh, right. which is the uh, Large Format Photography Podcast. Uh, is he? Yeah, and okay. I'm just going to scroll down. We'll see. Here we go. Uh, Jeff Perry, and uh, oh, he, okay. he, he posted some pictures of his um, his camera that he's building. And it looks really impressive. Um, okay, I've probably seen it, but didn't link the two. Well, you've been you've been you've been off uh, off camping, haven't you? And uh, <laughs> off 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 internet for four days. Yes, so, I've been very uh, camp for the last forgiven. four days. And he does some large format developing tank film reels as well. So just printing some tank reels. He says I recently sent him a four five Graflex RB so he could adapt a. Oh, you'll know what this is a Buell B-U-H-L projection lens to it. So if you want to know more about that, um, go and have a look on his Instagram, I guess. Yeah, what's, I what's mean, the, the, the benefit there is uh, it's 
I mean, it's a, it's a very large SLR uh, with a focal plane shutter, so you can... Oh, I've seen it. Yeah, I know who you're yeah. talking about. There you yeah. go. So, uh, so, yeah, you can put a projection lens on that, no problem at all, but she's... Yeah, you know, because the uh, the shutter's just in in front of the uh, in front of the film. Okay, and one quick one also from James before we move on and let Stephen talk about his his uh, inside the outside group and various things. Uh, James wrote another email and said, "I'm doing more large format night photography these days, and my current light meter." The Siconic L758D, which I think is what you use, Stephen, isn't it? You can quickly unmute your mic if you're listening. Uh, uh, is, that yeah. <laughs> is that what you've got? Because that's for spot meter combined with um, uh, instant and reflected, isn't it? Yep. Yep. Nice meter. Uh, can't really read low levels. I just get an error message. I know I could use an app on my iPhone. Um, but I'd really like to get a more accurate reading as I imagine there's some inconsistency between light meter apps and the different types of cameras and sensors on various smartphones. Well, light meters. Wow, there we go. So I'll, I'll perhaps answer this very succinctly, James, because I mean, really, you know, depending on what sort of light meter you're using and how old it is, some will respond better to low light levels than others so whichever one you use play around with it and see what sort of results you're getting and get used to it again but i i i use for low light stuff i use a gosson luna 6f which goes down to a f point seven or something i think very low light anyway i was, I was going to say andrew you, you're making it sound like you've been using that uh, <laughs> that that uh, meter for a long time. How long, how, long, how long have you owned that meter? Oh, years and years and years. <laughs> or a no. week. <laughs> yeah, no, but before that, I had a um, Gossen Luna 6 3S, which also went down to that level. So you're right. This one re this one replaced my other Gossen meter, which was also in low light. But it works in much the same way, except that the Luna 6 has a, a null metering point as opposed to the Gossen Luna 6 3S, which... That's different combinations. So no, yes. As, 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 it's also worth just uh, just clarifying there that we should, you know, it is the, the Luna Six F is different from all the other Luna Sixes, um, and uh, and it's it's pretty much based off the Profi Six, uh, which is what I which is what I have, and I'm uh, reverting back to it because uh, this this one works for me. But it it absolutely yeah. does work well with uh, with with low light, and, yeah. and in my view, it's a much better. Um, it meter is. than the, the normal Luna 6 uh, meters. Well, they both have the same sensitivity range, so um, they both go down to the same... Yeah, exactly. It's basically the but same they, thing. But they do work in different ways. Uh, mm. The reason I bought the Luna 6F was because my Luna 6 3S just packed up. And plus it, it had used to have to, you have to... You have to use the 1.35 batteries or the conversions in the 3S, whereas the Luna 6F takes us one of those square nine volt uh, ones but i have been using it in low light conditions even though i've had it a couple of weeks and it's uh, it's very very sensitive the alternative is and i'm really not on commission here because i've mentioned him a few times uh, is to get a copy of andrew sanderson's maybe it's the lensless podcast i've mentioned andrew on quite a few times so andrew i don't think i've mentioned you in the large format photography podcast but Andrew produces a book all about night photography, and he gives some really useful 
crib sheets and guidelines for metering in metering street scenes, landscape scenes that are illuminated by streetlights, that are illuminated by moonlight, and you don't necessarily need a fancy meter to to do it. But Andrew's book is well worth checking out. So I don't know, Steve, have you got any suggestions for low light metering? Um, I, I, I agree with what you've just said of, um, with Andrew Sanderson's book. Um, I'll be honest with you, it's not something I do an awful lot of. Um, and I've found that usually it's guesswork um, because the, the accuracy at night uh, is very difficult. So I, I tend to pretty much know how many minutes or uh, hours you're going to need and just work from that, um, knowing that um, with with film, black and white film especially, then the likelihood is that with reciprocity and everything else that goes into it, um, you, you're not going to be too much of a risk of blowing out highlights and, and the like. So, uh, but yeah. The other, the other factor in there as well, is, which we've not touched upon, is reciprocity as well. Um, which is going to play play havoc with the uh, with with long longer exposures. As in, uh, I think once you go over um, a second or there thereabouts, um, what the light meter is telling you, you you might need and what you actually need may well be two different things. Yeah, yeah, and every film manufacturer gives guidance on those. Or are, you can there are a couple of apps you can use on your phone to establish reciprocity. Adjustments. Yeah. He does make a good point. How did Steiglitz get all those amazing night shots over 100 years ago? Well, I, th- I imagine it's just knowing his materials inside out and experimenting. Well, and that's another point. That that camera that's in a bag uh, that you mentioned, um, that has a Taylor Taylor Hobson uh, rapid view in it, uh, which is extremely similar to... Uh, one of the uh, are we saying the Seiglitz? Um, I, was, I was going to call it Seiglitz, uh, but uh, let's go with Seiglitz because you've said call it. Pull the whole thing off. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, the that lens that you have there is a variation of uh, one of the lenses that he was using. So um, really, it's a meniscus lens, and uh, I expect to see some amazing uh, pictorial images from you soon at night. Not about <laughs> soon, but yeah. Okay, any. Any questions so far, Mr. Foster? No, no, no. We're all, we're all good. Um, okay. I I think uh, let's. I've got I've got a question uh, for for Stephen, and and mm-hmm. this will probably bring us on on to inside the outside. Um, but it's it's about. Um, I'm I'm I'm. I mean, we touched upon this when we we last spoke, um, and I'd, I'd like to talk talk about it. Um, and that's how you. It's your approach to taking a photograph um and uh what 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 motivates you what do you see in the scene what what are you what are you looking for um so perhaps you could expand on that one um wow um well i suppose the first thing is that i'm not really looking um for anything um that's going to sound a little weird when you when you you're actually using a camera um to to record an image but um much of my my work is around the experience of actually being in the landscape. Um, so a lot of it is when I'm out walking. Um, that's a massive part of my process, if you like, in terms of, well, you know, how do you engage with a place? How do you uh, respond to and then record 
something that's representative of of the landscape um and i guess that over the years what's what's changed from that point is you then move to a place well actually i'm not photographing um uh, of i'm not taking a photograph of something i'm taking a photograph about something and sometimes that's about how i felt at that moment in time or um how you know i responded to to a place itself um and, and i guess that's where we move into the realms of um metaphor um and using a different way of uh, approaching image making is that it's uh, you know again it's around what is it i'm trying to represent am i representing um the view or the, the a, a tree or um or is it i think what i'm trying to do is then record almost like a snapshot or a, like a, a memory snapshot of how i felt at that moment in time so um for instance if it was a you know a, a bright sunny day and you wanted to take a photograph to represent a bright sunny day um would you point the the camera at the sun and the sky well not necessarily you may point it at a blade of grass or um a um a, a um something else that represents um you know perhaps light shining through a leaf or branches or or a landscape to then um represent what it is that you felt at that moment and therefore it becomes it becomes not about the image itself um i probably rambled on there in terms of an explanation but uh, but i think it's it's around that um a picture of a bridge doesn't need to necessarily represent the bridge it can be something that is um, representative of somebody crossing from one place to another either within their mindset or um you know something else in their life that's crossing over and it's around how do you um introduce that to your own image making and your thought process in terms of what you then photograph well the actual process that you go through to take your your photos is it's it's very deliberate i mean using large format cameras is a deliberate thing in its own right um but i mean we we had a a chat about which uh, image we might use for the um, for for the artwork, uh, for instance, uh, uh, for this week. And we, it, it was it, it's when when we I, I talked about potentially uh, flipping this particular image, uh, so it faced a different direction, and and it was your reaction to that. I thought I thought was particularly interesting because um, I know that you wanted. When you took that image, that you you saw the final image, you saw the final print, and um, and for uh, for me to come along and potentially change that in a in in my mind a, a seemingly innocuous way that that's that goes completely against the way that you would uh, you you want your images portrayed. Um, yeah, um, it sounds terrible that I'm that purist about things because um and i know that that there are um alex boyd who who i um who i know would always say that purism is the death of art um and and i sort of subscribe to that to a degree however um i think if if you are trying to represent something in the image then it also um 
I, I do subscribe to reality um, and it needs to, that is what I saw on the day. That is how um, I, I wanted the image to look when I actually took it. If I wanted to have changed to change it, then, then I would have visioned it in that way and I would have, have thought about it to, to, to potentially say, right, well, I'm going to take it this way, but I'll invert it when I get back. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's the way I would have done it. Um, so the technique becomes less important in terms of the, um, what the output really needs. To be. And it's the output that's the important thing. Too. St Steve, I think as well, um, you know, I understand why Simon hit on this photograph. Because, folks, if you want to go to Stephen's website, stephensegersby.com, and newly updated just for just for you folks the the series of work and and there's the key it's all about a series of work with steve and this is uh, the, the 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 photograph that simon's referring to is a gentleman called tim andrews who i'm sure uh, Stephen will talk about in a little while but this is part of a series uh, and i've seen some of these images on the wall um and and they're and they're rather lovely but it, they're not just a to, to view any one of them in isolation is not how they were intended to be made. And the series is called A Process of Reclamation. So maybe, Stephen, you can perhaps talk a little bit about working in series and, and in fact, use this series to explain this concept of how you, you know, what, you, what you're trying to um, put over to, the, to, the, to, the, to someone who, see, who looks at your uh, series of these images. What, 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 what sort of m metaphors and, th and things are you... Are you um, looking to pursue in this in this body of work yeah for sure um so process of reclamation was a was a series that i took over about three years um it's it's mainly featured in um in the lake district um and in the the slate quarry area of of the lake district um uh, i find Quarries are really interesting space, and there's some other quarry stuff on there uh, on my website as well with anti monuments. But within a process, a process of reclamation, it's a very old. These are very old quarries. These are 200 years old um, in the main. Some of them slightly newer. Um, that the opening image there is actually Hodge Close Quarry, which was shut in about 1960, I think. That's the one with the railway line. Isn't yeah, it? that's yes. um, that's uh, yeah, it's an old crane um, area. Really interesting place to be it's uh, it's quite a uh, 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 <laughs> interestingly uh, some say a scary place it's supposed to be the most haunted quarry in the country um you'll see that there's water in there and people go diving and they go down into um miles of um of quarry tunnels underneath and several people have died because they've run out of oxygen and they got lost and couldn't get out um but you know, it's having when you're in some of these spaces uh, in the Lake District. I couldn't help thinking around the people who um, to dug these um, these quarries uh, and the people who a lot of it was by hand. Uh, and I guess my my thought process is that they wandered off into um, trying to join the dots in terms of why I was feeling particularly um, sad. Uh, in some respects, um, around the quarry itself was like a metaphor for the planet and then the planet Earth. So there's an ecological um, slant to my thoughts, which were around, well, actually, this quarry is what we are doing as a, as a species to the planet. 
um, in that we are using up all of its natural resources. Um, we are excavating, we are um, burning, we are drilling, um, and and causing the the ecosystem of the of the planet quite a considerable amount of harm. So this was, you know, going around in my mind, and I'm um, whilst I'm there, I'm always conscious that the people who dug these places would actually, if you were to bring a 200-year-old person to the future and say, well, what do you think what's going on now, that probably the, most of them would be quite aghast at, at how we treat um, the planet and farming and, you know, how, how things have moved on. Um, so there was always a tinge of melancholy, and the places were quite melancholic, um, I was on my own. I like to photograph on my own um, the most of the time um, to allow me to, to, to think through. So the process of reclamation, um, actually what then happened as I moved through these places and took, um, took the images, obviously black and white to me is always a, is a tableau. So my image and compositions quite often are uh, almost... Um, I, to me, like an abstract expressionist piece of work in that they're not uh, of something. It's around using tone and detail um, to present an image which is um, uh, like a Jackson Pollock, if you like, or something of that ilk. So there's, it's more around um, one way of looking at a, a composition and a piece. And what I noticed was, as I wandered around these quarries, is that as the as the destruction had been complete, um, but actually nature had started to um, overgrow um, and started to fill in the gaps. Um, trees were falling into um, areas where the tops of the quarries were collapsing. The rock was coming loose through um, various um, years of, of weathering. Um, and then within that, you then had um, new woodland and trees growing back to create an almost a new landscape where you didn't even know it was a quarry in the uh, in the first place. So, a process of reclamation is is really is my um, is my view around how um, the the planet itself will regenerate, but it will probably be at the loss of human life. Um, so people are talking about the, the sixth mass extinction and these sorts of things. Um, whether that happens or not, I don't know. Hopefully it won't in my lifetime. Um, but I guess there's a little um, a slant is that, you know, the dinosaurs, etc., all died out. Um, and I think that in showing um, that there is recovery possible, even from the most horrendous destruction and that life will continue there is there is hope uh, in there as well um so that was my my thoughts around the process of reclamation and the two images that you refer to with tim um i asked tim to to come up because i wanted to represent a um the the historical man the man um in terms of it was a man who has created these places um, and has created this destruction um and I wanted to try and demonstrate that within just, a series of work. Steve, just talk a little bit about Tim and why you, well, got in touch with him and, and what he brings to this series. 
Yeah, so Tim's a Tim's a really interesting guy. He's, um, he was diagnosed with uh, Parkinson um, late in his life, well, not that late in his life, um, and and from that point forwards, he uh, he was a solicitor, well known solicitor in London, um, and he changed his life con- considerably, and he 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 used photography and to be photographed as a way of. Um, of, of I think discovering himself um you'll have to talk to him and and find out uh, why he's done that we've had long discussions but his um his 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 frailty if you like um and his condition had lead, led him to be I believe stronger led him into a different life and I think that him um and what he had had to cope with um you know he's got quite severe um, symptoms but um, he made the train journey up from Brighton he lives in Brighton um, and he came up and we, we had two or three days uh, in the Lake District um, and to make the images that we made and because I wanted I wanted to try and represent um, the, 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 the elder um, view of, of uh, mankind if you like and, um, and Tim's courage um but also his strength um but also his weakness was was the two things that they were both there present and i think that those were the two things i wanted to introduce into the work so that um it was represented as him as um as representative of those that had um died 200 years ago you know who had created these places and i wanted to try and show him as the ghost um some of the images you'll see in the in the Tim Andrews area, I've tried to, to I've used some double exposures. Um, there's a quadruple exposure on there actually, um, on an eight by ten. It didn't quite work as well as I was hoping, but um, it, it was around to try and introduce that presence and that that thinking around. Well, what is this uh, image all about? And, and, and certainly the hands um, image, which has been in several exhibitions of Tim's was very much around you know humans clawing at the the planet and uh, and that was my that was my thoughts on what the intention was with that yeah you've got there is a separate section on on your website well your website you know don't you but uh, for folks folks listening there's a series of pictures just all featuring tim in it and what i find remarkable is there's one where he's just a really tiny figure but it's like any human figure i guess you place it in a landscape and he, you, your eyes immediately drawn to it, and he's he's placed pretty much in the middle, uh, a little bit off to the centre. Um, but that, that again, that contrast between the naked man and this harsh rocks, I find really, you know, that sort of almost uh, uh, duality of response between the softness and the hardness, and and the fact you've used a naked man as well, which is pretty unusual because most people would want to stick a naked woman down there wouldn't they but then i guess it wouldn't have been you steve and you that wouldn't have fitted with your uh with what you wanted to put over with a uh, uh, with a process of reclamation no no and you know that image is it's actually my favorite um yeah but it's it's, it's the whole thing about it is in terms of all of the collapse and the size of that he's surrounded by all this yeah. this debris isn't he and this broken landscape yeah and and man made that it didn't just happen it's not you know the result of geological transformation somebody has come there and cut the rock 
away and turned it to slate and put it on roofs. Um, so that that weak, mild person, um, if you like, is uh, is representing, you know, mankind. And uh, as individuals, we are, you know, reasonably weak in the grand scheme of geology. Um, but look what we can inflict if we. Um, there's lots of metaphor there. There is. I, I see the, the the land raped and laid bare, or laid bare, and there's a, a very frail Tim Andrews. Well, you know, from what you've said, he's he's, he's quite frail with this, and knowing he has this uh, <laughs> disease as well, you know, it's. Uh, yeah, I don't. I, you probably won't appreciate me telling him he's frail, but um, he's he's uh, he has the uh, the courage of, of the, one of the strongest men that I've ever met. But his, his sense of humour um, and what he brings to um, photography uh, and to the to the project was was fantastic, and I'll never I can never thank him enough in terms of uh, the time that we had. Hmm. I'm sure, Simon. Well, uh, I mean, I I enjoyed that uh, chat that we just just had there, listening to you there, and uh, we we were also uh, last time we were talking about. Uh, nude photography um, and how um, many nude photographs seem to be taken for the point of having a, a, a naked woman in there without any real reason for why the naked woman is there if that makes sense whereas you look at the, the photographs here um, and there seems to be a real purpose and you've explained the purpose um, and I think it's, it's, it is one of those things that when you when you hear the artist ex explaining or there's an artist statement as to why a photograph is done in the in a in a particular way it, it can really help but you know these these images and there's there's one one in particular there where he's he's, he's sitting on the rock looking to the left um i think it's, you you don't need an explanation in that one you can read into that that photograph almost anything you like but the main point is that it it doesn't it's not incongruous you know, it's uh, yes. There's a juxtaposition there between you know the softness and the, and the rock and, and and so on, but you know it just it actually stands up by, without explanation. I think the interesting bit, which that which we haven't touched on, is that if you look um, a direct line in terms of where he's looking, um, you'll see there's a very small plant just growing up from the from below. Yeah, yeah, and that. For me, um, that was exactly um, the whole process of the project around a process of reclamation is that that small twig will grow into a very large tree. And eventually, after hundreds of years, you will not be able to discern that space there from a natural environment. So that's where the process of reclamation and, and geological time, if you like, moving on was very much in my thinking around you know what am i trying to um to represent through through a process of reclamation and i guess it's it was around that hopeful uh, view that one day whether the human life is here or not the planet will recover from from the disaster that we've uh, wrought upon it um and that life will continue just as it did for the dinosaurs and and you know the other extinctions that have happened in the past Steve, looking at your work as a whole, I, I, there, there is a there's often a common theme uh, exploring um, 
exploring uh, things like myths and legends and uh, and you haven't got your work on there at the moment of the black shook which i'd like you to talk with listeners about <laughs> but there's certainly male- malevolence is one i've been following for a long time i think that's probably not large format but uh, you know the one with the, like the ghost walking down <laughs> but there's a sense of unease and a sense of um uh disquiet about yeah that's probably what i'm searching for particularly in, in your images of woodland uh, and you you you've been working on this series called black shook maybe you can just talk a little bit about that and that sort of picks up on this uh, i know it's linked to sort of myths and things but it, to me that the black shook work which i think you're now making into a book as well you can perhaps tell us about that does pick up on this feeling of unease and exploit really you know getting deeply involved with the landscape and what it's meant to people over the years yeah um yeah, I mean, Malevolence is, there's, there's two things that, Malevolence was an interesting series because it was total serendipitous. There was no intent um, at all with any of that series. It came from a, a purchase of a very large stock of um, out-of-date uh, film. Um, the the seller, I thought, was that there was, it was described to me, oh, they'll be okay. Um, they've all been kept in a freezer. Um, what then turned up was 50 rolls of uh, film, which varied in time from 1995 um, through to 2007 was the newest. And I bought it about six years ago, seven years ago, six years ago. So, um, so yeah, so uh, buyerware and all that. But anyway, um, I then uh, took these uh, images. I was in the Forest of Dean um, so, so I was actually taking none of these images were supposed to have any of this black stuff on it. Um, and when I developed them, um, there was all of this black stuff over um, a large proportion. There's about 80 images in total, um, which you can just pick out um, bits of a variety of spiritual-looking black stuff. Um, yep. And if I'm honest with you, because, again, um, I think because I spend a lot of time on my own, in the landscape um and all of a sudden history um and myth and legend and probably too many horror stories when i was a kid um it seeps in you know there's a lot of writings robert mcfarlane has written around the eerie in the landscape there's various films that have been written um around the unease of the english landscape um and i have to say um the forest of dean which is where these were taken was a very um it's a very dark forest that's the only way i can describe it i'm not a spiritual uh, religious person at all um but i do have that sense of being watched um and i guess mm. we all have that and i get i think that's that there's something there but you don't quite know what um so when this when all of these images came out which i was quite pleased with some of the images and then to see this black splodge um <laughs> everywhere all of a sudden it was as almost as if somebody had said that's exactly how i felt that blackness describes perfectly the feeling of unease that i had while i was on my own because it was late in the evening or early in the morning so it was quiet there was nobody else around um there was deer and boar we stumbled across some boar um i did have the dog with me um and um you know it was so 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 that's where it stems from and 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 i guess that series actually that's what started the 
the black shook work and made made me start thinking about the landscape um, slightly differently. So a project, uh, a process of reclamation was in it was was before this work, um, and I think that was more of a uh, more of a literal objective um, view. Whereas um, my current work is now trying to work on the stories that we that we tell ourselves or we make them up as we're walking through landscapes and i always hark back there's a there's a famous um roman um there was a monk um back in roman times and it describes walking across the fens um i, I can't remember it word for word so i'm not going to try um but it it basically describes a black quaggy uh mess that you know that they had it was impossible to to cross and they spent days walking through a misty fog and if you've ever been to the fens which i know andrew obviously has um it absolutely typified um my experience of a wet horrible foggy misty damp day on the fens and you can imagine it um, being there so it's a lot of it's um, uh, having an imagination around what is the landscape telling you or your experience of it and i and i think a black shook was the next step um, in, and, and it, it was a more of a realization of about eight years worth of work. Um, I took photographs, but I didn't really know why I was taking them. Um, and I always had a feeling of, of being watched. Um, I think that there is a phobia. I can't remember what it's called now. Um, but within that, when you're out in the landscape, you are opening yourself to, the elements and around how your brain can start playing tricks with you and your limbic brain, the old fight and flight brain, not the modern, um, you know, contemporary brain. This is the one of fight and flight and uh, wrestling uh, saber toothed tigers and that side of things. Um, and once it, if you let it loose and you start um, experience that wildness, um, you, you can let things in. And I guess Black Shook. Um, is a story of East Anglia um, of a, a big black dog, and if you if you have a look at some myths, the black dog myth being a um, a representation of the devil or something an ill omen um, in Yorkshire, they have the bar jest. Um, then um, there's various stories that spring up from that, um, uh, and various deaths that have been uh, attributed to seeing a. Uh, one-eyed dog, some sometimes two-eyed dog. Um, sometimes, actually, people report seeing it, but feeling as though it's a supportive presence, not a um, dangerous presence. And I think that uh, that was that experience. And when you start reading the reports of the sightings, um, I suddenly started to realise that that's how I was feeling just by exploring the landscape on my own with my camera. Um, so I started started to try and put the work together in such a way that um, we start to represent a journey, a walk. Um, I then, uh, when I moved from Norfolk um, to Yorkshire, um, I actually left um, Norfolk by crossing it. The Pedder's Way is um, a walk that um, sort of really, really old uh, Roman times or pre-Roman uh, walk that joins Ickneald Way to joins basically Thetford and cuts across north to south across Norfolk. Um, most roads go east to west, um, and I spent three days on my own with my camera uh, and walked the fifty miles 
um, from from north to south. Um, camped in fields and uh, like lived um, how you would have done three, four hundred, five hundred years ago, which you would have walked. You wouldn't have gone on horseback. You'd have you've had to walk it if you were um, uh, a normal um, person, if you like. Um, uh, and you know you can see why in that in that moment of that three to four days that I that I took to do that, the whole process of working and the whole history was seeping into my bones if you like um, and that's what uh, some of the images that I made um, started and you're making that I, I saw something on Instagram recently where you were collating finally beginning to collate those images I think they're probably platinum prints but I'm not sure I can't remember And but you're making at least one book are you making yeah, handmade, handmade yeah. copies or uh, what, no, what are you doing? Well, there'll be one book, one, um, which is the one that I'm making um, at the moment. I've printed the images. I, they need a little bit of an edit, um, which is this 52 images at the moment. Which is the, this is the first book, which is the which is I've called the way, um, and that is about walking from. Uh, this is the Pedder's Way, mm -hmm. um, and the other is the Wandering, which is built up of all of the images that are taken across East Anglia, um, with a focus on. Um, those areas um, that, that black sugar has, has been reported in. Um, but yeah, platinum printing. Um, so you're actually making the book out of original platinum prints. They're not. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. So the book are there, there, there are platinum prints that I've, that I've made. Um, and then um, I've now worked the binding that I can use to sew um, those together um and in a lay flat process so that all of the images will be in one book uh, so yeah so not your average blurb then uh, <laughs> no I, I dread to think how many hours there'll be in it because each an hour or so um to mm. make, and that's once yeah. I've made the internet so um it's not something you're going to do a, a run of 500 on that's for sure mm. And tying them together is also a, a, that's a, a challenge. Stephen, tell us a little about a little bit about inside the outside collective, uh, how you came to form that with about the lovely folks you work with, and what your aims and objectives are, where you're going to go with it, and uh, you know, so just yeah, tell us all about inside the outside. Well, inside the outside was um, there's 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 great friends that we met um, on basically because we liked each other's work. Um, that's where it all started on social media and Twitter back in the days where you could have a conversation and um, it was a, it was a good place to connect with people and, and have random conversations around photography and various other bits and pieces. It's changed a bit now, but um, in in those days, you know, you could really support each other's work. And and Al um, and I um, first hooked up on there, and I'm and, and obviously Rob was again. We we so that's Al Bryden and Rob. Uh... Yeah, What's Rob's surname. I've forgotten. Rob Hudson. Rob Hudson. That's it. Yeah. Um, and and we'd you know we connected on there. A lot of conversations. I met. I went and visited Al, which was slightly weird, if I'm honest with you. Just turned up in the blue, out somebody you've never met before. Mm -hmm. um, but we went and trespassed in a quarry, which was good fun. I enjoyed that. Um, and, and obviously, we then, as we went through those various exhibitions, Robert was exhibiting in Edinburgh, so we made our way up there and had a lovely weekend in Edinburgh. Um, and then Joe um, also 
became interested in, in, in our work and our, us in his. Um, Joe's actually a big, large format photographer. Um, he uses 8x10 and 5x4 colour um, in all his work. So when you see, if you had check out Joe Wright's work, it's all large format um, colour work in the main. Um, and he, uh, we, we got together and we, we regularly went to exhibitions. So one, we wanted to go and see the uh, Fikasi Ravens exhibition, which is at the Michael Hobbs mm-hmm. Gallery. Um, so we went to London, which were the original prints. Um, so we went down there and had a weekend in London. And as you do, you sat in the pub that evening, had too much to drink. We met up with Guy Dickinson and we said, wouldn't it be really great if we could just put a little group of us together where we could promote contemporary landscape photography and um, and share other people's work and really try to, you know, bring something together. I think there was a, our view was that there was, there's an awful lot of um, bucolic um, landscape photography out there. It's it's all over the, the, you know, amateur photographer and all of the photography magazines. There's a lot of digital photography out there that covers that. Um, we wanted something that was more appealing to, um, to a different, different contemporary view of landscape photography, and and that's what we wanted to promote. Um, so we we got a few people together, and we started. Um, Joe put the website together, and we started sharing our work. And then um, we wanted to make sure that we were sharing the work that that was in tune with us. And if you have a look on the ITO on the inside the outside website, um, there's a load of featured articles. I think there's over fifty on there now. Um, and we approached those individuals because they had something to say that, that we could tap into, but also words were just as important, um, as the series themselves. And you also notice they're all as a series, you know, I think we very much believe that a photographic series is a story. Um, each image in themselves is a narrative, but to, to really tell a story, you have to join those narratives together. Um, and I think that's what we've uh, we just wanted to promote it and bring it all together in one place. So, yeah, we've had three exhibitions now. Um, we've just been asked to do a fourth. Um, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say that actually, but um, but hey, I won't give any details away. Um, and um, yeah, it's it's just a great thing to be involved in. They're you know they're like my. Um, um, you know, the, my brothers in arms, we don't agree on everything all of the time. We're not all the same. We're all very different in our approaches and we all bring something different to the party. And, uh, and uh, you know, the the way that um, we've tried to open people to other ways of, uh, of thinking, um, other ways of putting their work together and trying to promote those who are looking to, to do things differently um, is... is really been rewarding and that's why we do it we're not in it for our own um output it's around how do we bring photographers who have got something to say together um and um and try and share in that and share it with with other people yeah and you do it very well so i think folks out there if you if you if any of this resonates with you this approach to image making working in series um words and pictures combining photography as a metaphor uh, and you're looking for something inspirational then check out uh, inside the outside website growing by the day yeah so we're up to over 3000 followers on there now and um yep. it's it's um 
yeah, the work that we've that we're, we're very privileged, and we we like that. We've produced a few zines, and uh, uh, obviously the guys do their individual things as well. But um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, yeah, I bought a couple of books from different individuals. That certainly got one of ours and someone else's. I got a couple on my bookshelf. Um, use a small independent publisher. I think I forget who they're called, but I've, uh, yeah. Um, JW Editions is probably that's, uh, that's Joe's um, publishing. He's got. Oh, is that? Yes, one. that's right. Yeah. Um, and uh, Al's obviously just got his new book, Solographs, out. So yeah, I saw that online. I've not um, got a copy of it. Oh, it's it's a stunner. Yeah, we we'll have to have him on the Lensless podcast. You should. Yeah, um, I'm sure he'd be happy to do that. Um, he'd be interested. The Solographs, especially, is. Um, was was that's a long piece of work for Al, and it's it's, uh, it's a really great book, and the colours and the, the way he's uh, approached it is fascinating. Um, Stephen, I I think that's a a good place to end, not just because we're talking about pinhole now. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, I've really I've really enjoyed listening to you today, and um, and 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 for once I've been quite happy to sit here uh, rather than uh, Andrew talking to me, not being able to get a word in edgeways. <laughs> So it's been it's been fascinating that I've I've really enjoyed your um, thought process um, about you know how you how you approach things and why you're taking photographs because I, th- I think many of us um, I've, in fact actually it, it, it can be a you know people call it a, a mindful mindfulness experience and some but sometimes I think taking photographs is a mindless experience um you see something you compose it and you take the shot and you move on um whereas that's just that's a as far removed um a process um than than what you do you know there's so so much thought that goes into things and i think when you as i alluded to earlier i think when you actually understand the 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 process that goes into a photograph the, the the, the photograph of the image then really really speaks to you and uh i was trying to wind things up now but i almost want to go back and talk about the uh that series on malevolence there where those dark patches that were appearing in in the film in in, in the photographs which many people would look at that as being oh it's you know disastrous um you look at it in the way that you've described it and the, the, it adds so much to it and um i mean it actually looks a little bit like like um, some kind of wet plate um photos have not not quite gone right and um yeah and they just it just adds something and i just want to add another point is when you talked about the forest of dean and uh, and there's a there's a feeling that i've been to the forest of dean myself and it's a it's a very interesting place, and I, and I think there's something that um, resonated with me was when you say like about you feel like you're being watched. Um, I I think there's there's something about old industrial places, and the Forest of Dean. If people don't don't know this, the the Forest of Dean is it's it is an industrial area in a forest. Um, so there's there's been a lot of human work. Uh, in those in the in the forest of Dean over a very long period of time, and like you were talking about in, in earlier about the reclamation, that's a, a lot of the forest of Dean is is covering over things that humans have done for hundreds of years. So I think it's that that presence that although it can't be it can't really be easily seen in places in the forest of Dean, it's still actually there. That it's 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 a natural environment, but it's also slightly unnatural at the same time. 
Yeah, it's um, it's a really a weird place, and there, there is actually I think it's a square mile which is fenced off, and nobody is allowed to go into it. Um, which is the area of um, like total natural um, decline of trees falling, um, vegetation, all that sort of thing. Now, I found that absolutely fascinating. The forest of Dean's quite a big forest, so but we're only allowed one square mile of um, of, of actual complete natural um, selection, if you like, um, which. It's almost like a zoo for, for nature, um, which and I guess I'm getting back into. You can see where my brain goes. It's it's. I probably need therapy or something. But um, <laughs> you know, it, it's around those odd things that we see that interest me. And in, in terms of how do you then represent that in a story, or how do you tell a, um, a you know, and we we talked about myth with Black Shook, is that. Um, you know, all of my little stories, I call them mythologies, and we, we talked a little bit about psychogeography. I think I'll have to come back to talk about that one. Um, but myth, these are stories. These are just me and my imaginations and my thoughts that I have while I'm walking alone in the landscape and, and what they say to me. Um, and, and I think that, you know, that's the, uh, the joy of photography as me is actually trying to represent something and communicate with people at a different a different level. So, you know, if you're interested in taking a photograph of something, why not think about well, why is it that you uh, that you want to want to take that photograph? I think that's a, a great place to end it again. <laughs> um, well, Stephen, well, surely we can go off on another tangent. Well, we can, but we're not going to. We, we, it's, uh, people have got lives. But just say, just uh, say that again, because that, that was I, I loved what you said then. I was half dozing off, but I just. Uh, um, what you said then, if you're taking a photograph, something about uh, if, if you're inspired to take a photograph, yes. and, for, and you don't understand why you want to take a photograph of something, um, just just spend a few moments to sit. Don't take the photograph. Mm. Think about what it is that it means to you. So then, when you are then go back and you've taken it and you've developed it and you've printed it. And you're telling a story rather than it just be one image that is confined to an album or a hard drive somewhere. Um, what is it you're, you're trying to say? What is it that it meant to you? Because I think that if you start opening well, that one, that up, one image then could kick off a whole storyline, couldn't it? Yes. Yeah. It's opening yourself up to those thoughts and um, doing things differently. And we talked about minor white, you know, there's a perfect example of somebody who would very much think about, um, well, we talked about Minor White probably off air, but uh, yeah. But he is, you know, we, if folks want to some recommendations, Minor White is someone who I know would look, you know, in terms of using the photograph as a metaphor and as an idea, as, a, as an exploration of self. Yeah, very much so. And um I've got a whole list that I've written down, but I can't go through it. We haven't got enough time. Well, you can send them to me, and I'll um, uh, anything like that, Steve. You want we can we can type up and put in the in the notes that accompany the show when it goes out. So um, I'm sure we'll have a, a, a shed load of useful notes. There are some that you've mentioned as I've been going through, which I'll just have to message you and get you to spell them for me. But yeah, um, we we'll get you know the, the show notes will be a great place to to go off and uh, follow up on some of these things. 
Right, well, for the third time, <laughs> I'm going to try and wind, wind the show up. Well, it keeps getting interesting, so what, what can you say? Um, Stephen, thank you, thank you again. And um, so uh, just, I mean, we've talked about uh, your website and such, but uh, let, let's just um, talk quickly if we can just go through those places where people can find, find your work, uh, whether, whether it be on social media whether, or, or websites. Do you want to just uh, go through those again? Um, yeah, so um, obviously my website um, is, is www.stephensegersby, stephenwithaph.com. Um, you can find my work on there. Um, you can find my work on Instagram, although most of the stuff on Instagram is just digital camera stuff that I, that I use to sketch with. Um, and you can find me on Twitter. Um, quite often I'm usually looking at, at, at people's work on there. I don't tend to post much of my work on there at the moment. Um, you share some great links, though. I, won't, I love won't. your links you share. <laughs> I, go, I go on... Uh, it, it, it comes down to printing and platinum printing doesn't come out very well online. So, um, mm. it, it's, uh, it, it started to become a, a, a problem in, for me in terms of people seeing the work that I, that I share in the way that I want them to see it. So, um, so yeah, so I, I do my best with the website, but, um, if people have got, um, anything that they want to ask me around platinum printing photogravure, which I'm really enjoying, I've just started printing with, um, with Japanese papers on photogravure, and they are really excited by what that's uh, that's turning into. Um, then, so yeah, Tina Tina Rowe uses quite a lot of Japanese papers. She was a guest on the Lensless podcast. Sorry, but she was. So if you don't know, if you Mrs. Tina Rowe, just Google her anyway, Steve. She she does a lot of. Um, stuff with liquid emulsions mm -hmm. uh, she explores the idea of gender identity because she's she's transracially adopted and a very very interesting lady and um, she'd been on our lenses podcast last year she was due to come on again but we had some tech problems but check out if you're not familiar with the work of tina Rowe, that's my shout out t-i-n-a-r-o-w-e cool Okay, so uh, that's that's your shout out already done. Mm. So I, I ask you to do. Um, uh, I don't think I've got a shout out this week, but I will. Uh, I do want to mention uh, that we've uh, since our last uh, podcast, uh, we've um, had two generous donations uh, to us on our coffee page. That's uh, ko fi dot com, and then you search for large format photography podcast, and you can find us there. And that's a way that you can help us uh, with the, the running costs of this uh, this, this podcast. Um, and we have had two uh, donations, as I mentioned, one from uh, Gretchen Hayhurst. Thank you very, very much, uh, Gretchen. And, uh, Gretchen. Yeah, the comment was, uh, I thought you might be able to use more than a cup of coffee or beers. And uh, yes, <laughs> that's, uh, it's very, very generous of you there, uh, Gretchen. Thank you there. And, uh, and Christopher J. May has uh, donated again um and he's and uh he's he's, he's given us five coffees uh there for, for oh he's the he's the one show one donation show man is it, it yeah <laughs> yeah um so we're uh, bankrupt by uh this time next year yeah i, th I think um this the show isn't actually episode six it's uh 67 uh christopher <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> <laughs> no 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 um thank thank you very much for for um 
what you've what you've done for us there. Um, and he's uh, said uh, really enjoyed the episode with Matt. Um, uh, thanks thanks for all the all that you guys do. Um, and thank thank you, uh, Christopher there. And fortunately, we we really enjoy what we're doing here. So uh, that's motivation enough. Or when we have a donation as well, that's it's you know, very grateful to receive. So thank you. Um, okay, well uh, that's pretty much it. Um, uh, we've done the places where uh, Stephen can be found. Um, how about yourself, Andrew? Me? Oh, you know, here and there. I'm on most places as Warboy Snapper. Um, I'm can be found weekly as a co another co-host on the Lensless podcast, and I enjoy hanging out in the Facebook groups. Uh, in particular for this one, the Large Format Photography Facebook group. So if you don't do Facebook, and I know a lot of folks don't, it's actually worth joining to be part of uh, what's becoming a very interactive and great place to chat about the show. I think that's the beauty of these groups, particularly when they're linked to a podcast. They allow the conversation to continue. Certainly, I know Matt did that last time around, um, you know, so if you've got questions for uh for steve um you know get a little thread going in the in the facebook group page so yeah so i'm warboy snapper in most places okay and uh i've got a, a website uh, where i sell things um at the moment it's uh fike has lens adapters um but i also have an ebay shop as well if you do a search for it's fozzy um as i say every week there's no large format uh, stuff on there because i want to keep it all for myself um uh what else uh, i do a weekly podcast uh called the classic lenses podcast uh, which is all about using old lenses um uh we have a email page an email page an email address uh, which is large format photography podcast at gmail.com so uh, you can send us any messages uh, just as james has sent some great questions in for us there uh, james thorpe um yeah send us send us more questions and we'll do our, our best to to answer those yeah we um, did have an email from ian didn't we ian fleming so hi ian um i don't think you asked a particular question but you just checked in with us so he said lovely, nice things lovely lovely to hear from you ian who i know is um um dabbles with eight by ten photography so and an eight by ten polaroid photography so yes yeah. yes and uh, uh and this is the bit where i normally uh, would say uh thank you to kevin mcleod of incompetech.com for our theme music uh, which is uh two finger johnny um mm -hmm. but it's uh, it seems to be causing a bit of con uh, controversy um in that uh graham of the sunny 16 podcast uh not the one that's just gone the one week before that uh, he complained about our theme music um suggesting that it's not particularly appropriate and uh, it sounds like we're a bunch of clowns and uh, and so on and uh, i i disagree with that i think it's great i love it i love our music um but the thing is i think that uh, uh, we do he's have becoming all snobby now he's got a large format camera uh, yeah that, that that's he's just his, his chances of coming on this show have just have just decreased ever so slightly um but i i, I want to put it out there to uh, to to listeners um you know what what do you think of our music um is it appropriate is it not do you like it is it too much is it uh, um so 
I think when this podcast goes out on the Friday, um, I'll create a poll on there <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll ask the, the, the members of our group uh, what they think of our music and whether or I not... I think Mr. Jago is obviously getting a, a bit insecure to be uh, bothering to criticise our... Uh... <laughs> Exactly. music, don't you? Yeah, precisely. So, um, so yeah. So we'll we'll have a poll there. If you wish to uh, make your uh, thoughts on the subject known, you can always email us at the address we mentioned earlier, which is uh, classiclensespodcast at gmail dot com, and um, and also feel free uh, to spam the Sunny Sixteen uh, podcast uh, <laughs> Gmail address, which is Sunny Sixteen, um, <laughs> and the sixteen is uh, with numbers, and then podcast at gmail dot com, and all and those always go through to graham um so uh, you can say whatever you like to graham as well so uh, um so thank you for that and uh so we can start a hashtag we love two finger johnny is that right <laughs> exactly exactly so um okay so last thing um, back to Stephen again thank thank you Stephen, for, for for being with us we've really enjoyed having you on the show well but thank you um thank you both um I've, I've really enjoyed it and and i have to say that we forgot to talk about my rider which was to not have that music on the episode that features me on it. So, <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, on, on on that note, uh, we, um, thank you again, Stephen, and um, I hope you've enjoyed listening to uh, to this show. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. So goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>